Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. No my fakaronga mai kita altai fenua welcome to the country life summer series I'm Sally Round taking you back to some of the farms and orchards we visited during the year Today Cosmos with chooks on a cliff edge I'm picking apples and Leah meets a dairy farmer who hails from Japan First to Tewaiwai free range egg farm between Tuatapere and Riverton in Southland Cosmo Kentish Barnes is there with Anna Penn and her 2IC, Yvonne Nimmo. Do you want me to lose? Yeah. What's happening right now, Yvonne? Um, we are grading the, the eggs into um, sizes through the, what's it called, Anna? Candela. Candela. They're rolling over a light. Yep. That's a clever idea. Yeah. So I can see if there's any cracks, but also yeah, I can see them and feel them yep. as well. Yes. And there's quite a variety of sizes. Yes, these girls have only been laying for about two weeks. And look at the size of that already in two weeks. Oh my gosh, that's huge. Now one's, one's going through with a crack. You can see it there in the light. What happens to that? Smash. Smash in the bucket. <laughs> I would ask you to do that again for sound effects, but uh, obviously you don't want to waste any eggs. Now, um, how many eggs are you processing today because it looks like there are what thousands in here this is two days worth at the moment so we collect well i collect about two thousand just over two thousand odd eggs a day um and grade and you've got uh, what one two three four sizes we've got the smalls and fives and then we've got eights and sevens and sixes what is the most popular size i would say it's seven Best coaching egg. People like them big, but not too big. Yes. And then we get the double yokers. What happens to those? Um, I'm lucky enough to take some home to eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. and, and Rob gives them as gifts to our clients. So he shares them around our clients in both retail, supermarket and, and the... Uh, cafes. So everyone gets a turn at getting double yokers. Anna, you are laying the eggs onto the conveyor belt that goes yes. over the light testing machine. Yes. And this is your business. Yes. Yep. Mine and, and Rob, my husband, we started uh, TYY in December 2019 from scratch. We just had a few fancy birds and thought, well, what can we do with 60 acres? It's sort of not big enough for a <laughs> A sheep farm or a dairy farm, and we loved birds, so we thought, well, we'll give it a go. So we started with a coop and then two coops, and then Rob thought, well, I can build these bigger and better, and so now we have six coops. So we're just sitting at under 3,000 birds. Mm. So we've got Yvonne, she's with us Monday to Friday, 
but we pick up the weekends and we do a lot of the sorting and the packing and yeah. you know putting in the van and the deliveries and the paperwork. And of course it's a good time to be producing free range eggs. Yes, obviously the demand's gone through the roof and, and there are big reasons behind that, you know, around the phasing out of caged eggs. Um, so normally New Zealand runs at around 4,200,000 and I think we're down to about 3,600,000 I think was the last figures I saw. I think we're roughly down around 400,000 hens. Yeah. So that's why there's this egg shortage right now. Yes, it's my understanding that when the moratorium was created in 2012, that 87% of the flock was encaged. In 2019, some of the uh, big chain supermarkets has said that they wouldn't accept any caged eggs full stop. So as we sit now, we've got a third in colony cages, we've got a third in barn, and we've got a third in free ranges. So that third in colony, some big chain supermarket won't accept those anymore and I believe that's why more farmers haven't gone into colony and that's what I think is the pressure behind the 400,000 list. Because the, the colony system is essentially larger cages, is that right? Yeah, they have what they call enrichments in the cages so it's different to uh, battery. The birds, sorry. So they have 60, what they call 60 units or 60 birds per cage and the cage is four metres, I believe, by four, it could be four or three, I'm not sure, you'd have to double check me, but they have enrichments which is roosts, they have a plastic mat that they can scratch and they have a nest box and that is legal. The government is absolutely fine with that. It's not the government, it's some big chain supermarkets that have said that they won't accept the colonies. Mm. So, Gosh, it's a lots of changes which are still ongoing. Yes, yes, it's going to be an interesting time in, in, in eggs, but uh, insofar as TYY is concerned, with 3,000 hens, we're a drop in the ocean. In terms of what Anna was saying about the size of the colony cages, I checked out the minimum space requirements in the Ministry for Primary Industries Code of Welfare document for layer hens. And it specifies that cages must have a minimum area of 750 centimetres square per hen or 13 hens per square metre. Now, behind the egg sorting shed is what Anna calls the home paddock. This is where she breeds and raises rare birds. I've got a uh, pea hen there, so that's female to the peacock. She's got little three babies oh, over there. And... Very elegant. Yes, they are, aren't they? This is the nursery we're about due to go through. Oh, now we should have got some food. This is where all the mums come to have with all the wee babies. The, this is the Aracanas. Yep. Yep, so these are lovely. They're a South American bird. Vasco da Gama used them on the big exploring ships because they uh, could withstand being submerged in the baskets on the bow of the ship, still lay eggs. They're just my little sideline. Everyone tends to, if, if you like birds, they have their particular bird that they like, and I like the Aracana. I like the I like the eggs and it's taken me a long time but I think I've got teal eggs. 
Have you always had an interest in birds? Yes, yes. I could show you a photo and there's about two when I'm at my grandmother's farm and I'm surrounded by birds and swans and muscovy ducks and everything. So yes, always had, always been a bird fancier. Um, never realised it would reach quite this peak. Um, but yeah, no, 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 I find them fascinating endlessly. Where did your grandparents have their farm? Down in Rangitata. I spent many, many summers down there. I was a Christchurch person as well. Oh, okay. And uh, we left after the earthquakes. A path through some trees and flax bushes leads to a long and skinny block of land. This is where Anna and her husband Rob have established their free-range egg farm. The sea is right there, the ocean. Yes, I can actually take you down to the cliff. Yeah, let's do it. Shall we go down through Coop 1? Yep. Come down. So tell me about this type of chicken that you've got for producing eggs. Well, the brown shaver, it's very efficient. It's been, it's a hybrid. So most chickens, as any bird owner will know of hens, hens will go broody at a drop of a hat come summer, come spring, come heat. And so these birds, their broodiness has somehow been cut out yes. down through the hybrid, hybridation. I'm not even sure what, what, what you call it, but the brown shavers do not go broody as a rule. And so how many eggs do one of these chickens produce on average a day? One. One, one is what we go for at this size, and the rollover, if, if you like, is when we don't look at individual birds, obviously, there's too many. What we look at is the percentage of lay over the entire coop. So once a coop falls below a 70% lay, that's when we just roll out, and that's when they go to end of lay or last chance saloon, and that's when we sell them to the community. So when their ability to lay eggs goes down due to age, you'll sell them to people who want to have a couple of chickens in their backyard. Yes, and, and the girls are still laying eggs. They just won't be laying eggs seven days a week. But having said that, you know, sometimes they bounce back because there isn't the competition or some chickens win chook lotto. They go to absolutely wonderful homes and they end up with, you know, people stringing cabbages up for them to eat and feeding them fruit and they're a wonderful pet, you know, and a lot of Kiwis, older Kiwis, remember the backyard chicken, so we have a lot of repeat buyers, um, older people who just come back and they just absolutely love them and us spoil them rotten. The chickens are all around us, pecking, scratching, searching for little goodies. <laughs> Talking. <laughs> They're talking. Yes, you are good talkers, aren't you? Yeah. And they look out yes. over the cliff towards the sea. Yes, they're direct south. So about, I think we're about 2,000, 1,800, 2,000 nautical miles from the ice. We're about 35 nautical miles from Stewart Island. You can see out there. Oh, and Solander has gone and hidden itself. And you could see it this morning. But that's the western end of the Humpridge Track, Fiordland. Over there, the Princess Mountains, TYY Bay. It's a uh, mammal sanctuary. 
And we are here at the bottom of the island. Yes. This must be the southernmost egg farm in um, Aotearoa. Yes. And I tell you what, because we're here and we've got a little bit of adversity in the weather with the wind and stuff like that, I think the chickens create a great egg. I think a little bit of adversity makes the birds stronger and their products, you know, they put merino at high altitude to get a finer micron, right? Yes. In the wool, put a little bit of adversity in the environment. Not bad. Good hardy chickens. Good hardy chickens. Now we've walked through um, the coop and this is the gate that heads out to the cliff. <laughs> there were some quite big waves today. Yes. Uh, TYY Bay, yes, we had surfers here the other day, which which made me worry because uh, Stewart Island, it's Yvonne will know this, I thought it was known as the Lear for the Great oh, White. I'm not 100% sure on that one either, no. I know yeah. there is a lot of sharks out there. What can you see? See Solander Island. Solander. Oh, there's Solander, it's just coming into view, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Sticking up, yes. like the end islands. of a thumb. There's three islands there. It must be good for the chickens to get this beautiful ocean air into their oh, lungs. Yeah, it's, it's just minerally enriched, every, everything about it. And when you're living next to a body of water like this, it might sound a wee bit airy-fairy, but you've got a molecular resonance. You know, if you think about birds are 90% water, humans are 90% water, you're living next to a body of water that big. I think there's a resonance. And overall, it's a confluence of factors, environmental factors, that just make this work. Looking back into the paddock, uh, the grass is, is so long that you can hardly even see the chickens. Yes. <laughs> oh, no, they're, they're, they've definitely got all the goodies they need. And Rob makes all our feed on-site. We don't buy any food um, off-site. Our grain grower is just down the road. He's a local boy. And uh, we do our mix in the mill and no chemical colouring at all to enrich the colour of the yolks. And uh, there's no genetically modified, none of all that uh, soy, none of all that type of stuff. We try and be as whole food as possible. Keep it natural and local. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I, I, I think that's the best thing. Yeah. And to stop the chickens from flying off the edge of the cliff you put a see-through fence up yeah just a windbreak just a we do get a lot of uplift here because they're so steep it comes up you'll find in the in the big winds the cattle they'll come and sit on the top along here because it just hits and goes straight up but this is just to give the birds a little bit of a break do the chickens sometimes escape and end up down on the beach never Never, but the bulls do. <laughs> We've seen the bulls tearing across the beach. That was a funny sight. Shall we go and collect some eggs? You'll yeah. get some chatter. You won't be able to hear yourself think. <laughs> Tell me about this this little vehicle here. Oh, this is the wee buggy. This is the buggy. This is Yvonne's little buggy. What do you do with this buggy? I go around and collect the eggs and put the eggs in the back and then when I finish I take them back in and unload them into the grading room. How many hours does that take? 
two hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. So you just go from coop to coop. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll go and do um, collect and coop five now, and be able to see those girls. We've got a very very good system uh, where the girls can just lay and just through a natural ga- gradient the eggs just roll away. You want that? Don't Pulling her trolley and towards the, the coop. This one's an escapee. Yes, time to get the eggs. <laughs> I am going to try and make my way through hundreds of inquisitive chickens so I can get to the inside of the coop. Sorry. Okay. Here we are, and um, Yvonne and Anna are checking inside for any eggs that haven't rolled down onto the conveyor belt. So this coop isn't finished completely, we're getting there. They're warm, they're fed, they're sheltered, they're happy. Okay, it mightn't be completely finished, but we're getting there. Who is the one that gets wet and uncomfortable? The humans. The birds are fine. Right, Yvonne? Yes. <laughs> now we are in Coop 5 and some of the chicks are in here taking a break. Yes. Um, others are going out to the other end. Yes. And so they can just come and go. Yes, yes, this is their little house. It's in an oval shape which acts as a sucker in the wind. It's not a flip, but a suck goes yeah. over the top and it pulls it down. Because the wind must get quite strong here. It gets fierce. Have a look at the trees. <laughs> <laughs> They're sideways. <laughs> And this is where all the laying happens. Yes, so the eggs just roll away, goes down through this. And we can see some eggs down there. Yep, but I just checked to make sure none are caught. And there's a wee ledge in there, so it's just making sure that everything is loosened up. And the eggs just roll out, yeah. Yep, they do. They just wind the handle and they out they come. There's no mechanical, is, it, is it what I mean to say. In the big operations, everything's mechanical. The feed's mechanical, the manure's taken out mechanically, the water's mechanical, the eggs are collected mechanically. It's just a massive... You think of a shed with 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 eggs. So. You're the opposite. Yes, we've, we're, everything's just hands-on, and that's why the girls are just, like, they're around you all the time. You can just... Because we come in so many times a day, we're checking the water, we're checking the feed, we're checking the nest boxes to make sure that no one's, yeah. you know, in trouble. Sometimes they get egg bound. Woohoo! You know? You need dental intervention sometimes, you know? We're, just, we're so small we can do that. Are you enjoying this this journey? Yes, yes, thoroughly. I think I think it's great. I think it's going to work. It is working. We could take double the orders. We just can't. But what we've got, who we've got, we're loyal to, and and they seem to be very happy with the product. And I just think it's a 
it's a it's a great environment for birds. So with all Rob's skills and with your passion and fascination with birds, birds. you're a great team. Yeah, yeah, we we are we we work well together. He's the what is it the yin to my yang he's the better and more intelligent half you know with the building and stuff like that and he does all the electrics and all the heavy loader work and stuff like that you know and I'm just more a, a, a watcher and stuff like that I, I just sit, sit back and I do actually run the regulations actually I do the MPI regs such an important piece of the puzzle <laughs> yes that's it <laughs> And another trolley full of eggs to be graded. Yes, that's it. Well, tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow now. So, so that, that's it for today. We just take them back, or Yvonne takes them back to the shed. We empty them out, and then we sit down, and we have a debrief and a vino, and we talk about things and any problems in the coop, maintenance and repair. What a great way to end the day. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. It's all part of... Working for yourself, isn't it? It's just lovely. We're just friendly. Friendly. Very friendly. They are friendly. They get a lot of human time. Yeah, which is good. Oh, it's, it, you know, well, a scared animal is full of adrenaline, cortisol. It'll turn itself off from its natural process because it's in flight or flight. Don't go under the floor. See, it's very primitive, because right? there's nothing flesh about here. These girls won't get in the road. <laughs> All right, I'll follow you. Come on, lady. <laughs> Anna Penn, ending that story from Southland. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. There's nothing like heading out with a basket to pick fruit from a tree. We're heading to Wairarapa now to meet a Greytown family who got into pick-your-own-apples at the end of last summer. Hi, I'm Merrin Cook. I'm the daughter of Juliet and Ed Cook. I started out as a musician. I studied oboe and, uh, at Victoria University and did postgrad in Germany. Uh, then after I came back to New Zealand and had my daughter, I went to law school. So law is my second career. I currently work for the government and I also play principal oboe with Orchestra Wellington. And I'm the self-appointed marketing manager of Molewood Orchard. <laughs> the really exciting thing is that we've decided to open this year for Pick Your Own Apples, uh, which is the first time we've ever done that. And it's actually quite unusual in Greytown these days. As, as far as we know, nobody else is opening for Pick Your Own. What's special about Pick Your Own I think it's the whole immersive experience. I mean, as you can hear, you're surrounded by cicadas and birds and you're in the middle of all these green trees. It's just so lush and it smells really nice. It's the whole experience of picking warm fruit off the tree and being able to eat them straight away when they're still warm from the sun. It's, it's just a really immersive sort of experience. Will people have free run of the place? That's pretty much the plan. We'll give them a map and we'll tell them which varieties are ripe so that they all come ripe at different times. Um, so, I mean, we haven't started yet, so, so it's possible there'll be some fine-tuning as we go along, but the idea is that we just give them the map and say, off you go. 
What do you remember about picking your own fruit when you were a kid? I remember eating the strawberries. <laughs> I think there used to be a policy that, that you could eat as much as you could. Um, so that, that was pretty nice. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, there were a whole bunch of berry orchards just along the road from where we lived. And so we often got sent off to, to go and pick some berries for, for dessert or for, for jam making. Yeah, it's a nostalgic thing, isn't it? People remember this as children. That's really not is. something that. Well, there are places you can go now, but fewer and fewer. Exactly. Yeah, it was such an integral part of our childhood. But I, I was talking to a friend recently, and she said she'd never been in an orchard, and that really surprised me. But then when I thought about it, why would you go in an orchard now if you don't know someone who knows one, and nobody's opening for pick your own? You, you just never get that opportunity. Connecting with where your food comes from, I guess that will be a big part of it for people as well. Exactly. Yeah, there's a real pleasure in actually picking what you're eating. Now, I was surprised how nice this one is, actually. Well, actually, it is. Um, it's like, it's getting, really good. It's, it's I mean, getting, I guess these, these are some of the ripest. It's fast. Uh, vastly it's improved. sweeter than last week's. The last week, yeah, mm. yeah. It's certainly Yeah, we're walking and crunching at the same time, aren't mm. we? Yes. <laughs> Now, these are the sun glow. They are very dark, and in fact, when they're ripe, they're almost black. They're, they're, you know, you see that one up there? Hello, I'm Ed Cook. I have been a lawyer, uh, but retired now. I was also a part-time professional musician, uh, playing violin, viola, in what is now Orchestra Wellington. I've always made things, and, uh, of course, I was... Uh, one of the leading proponents of this apple orchard. And we are recording this after a horrific week. You must be feeling for your fellow orchardists. I certainly am doing that. Oh, the poor people. Uh, the devastation that's being shown is just horrendous. And you know the hard work that goes into, yep. into having an orchard, running yep. an orchard? Mm-hmm, yep, absolutely. Even though this is our first season running it ourselves... Um, we the cooks helped it. plant we, we the 10.5-hectare orchard with its 6,500 trees three decades ago, but they leased it out when things got too busy with their other jobs. They took it back nearly a year ago after COVID took its toll on the operator who was leasing it and fruit was left to rot on the orchard floor. No pickers, uh, no RSE workers, or very difficult to get them. Uh, shipping was uh, problematic, expensive, chilled containers almost impossible to get uh, for a while and so um, you know decisions decisions as to what we do do we carry on or do we just like you know fold our tents and uh, sell up and and make money out of the place so why didn't you do that seems like an easier option yes well I happen to have a, a view about soils and elite soils and what has happened in New Zealand. Um, uh, yes. Tell so. me more. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm a, a, a ranting environmentalist, but I be do hold a very firm belief that the elite soils should not be you know, changed into housing. The council, I'm going to be a little bit sort of careful here what I say, they have actually passed a specific zoning on this orchard in this block uh, for future urban development. 
but we have existing use rights under the RMA. So uh, while we continue orcharding, uh, they can't do anything further about it. And so uh, I'm hoping that that's going to go on into the future. So we had to orchard, really. We have a large 24-metre-wide curving roadway with um, irrigation ditch, footpath, cycle path, lawn, leading right to our boundary. And that is destined on the council plan, that roadway, to come straight through the middle of this orchard right where we're standing here. Oh, so it's in preparation. <laughs> it's actually going nowhere at the moment. We're holding it's it going nowhere and we're holding it back. The road literally goes right up to the trees. <laughs> it's, mm. Yeah, it's the road, to the road to the trees at the moment. Hmm. So what do we do, uh, Sally? You tell us. Uh. <laughs> we sell apples. <laughs> we sell lots of apples. <laughs> the town, Greytown, was known as a, a kind of a fruit bowl back in the day, wasn't it? But that's not the case anymore. Yours is one of the last orchards left. Um, in 1988, uh, there were approximately 20, I think it was 26 orchards and berry fruit farms and vet market gardens. Now, and it's only, what, 33 years later, there is one of that original 26 left. That's Pinehaven Orchards. Why did that happen? Oh, there'll be a variety of reasons. Um, in, in terms of the market gardens, vegetables and so on, they were, a lot of them were Chinese and the children didn't wish to become orchardists or, or the parents wanted them to be educated and take up careers often professional so that's really what happened they, they ran out of oomph no one willing to take it on but now the, the land is covered in houses it's a very popular place to live isn't it unfortunately from my point of view uh... Juliet what do you remember of the uh, old days of Greytown when we first came to Greytown, we felt we stuck out like sore thumbs because everybody had been here all their lives and we were new imports, so we felt very conspicuous at first. But we did enjoy coming to um, a rural town where the pace of life was a bit um, gentler than the city and there were all these fruits and vegetables and berries available to pick um, or buy from the grower. I, mean, I can remember as a small child, we used to come over, our family, to visit friends in Masterton who had um, lots of plum trees and uh, we would also stock up on apples. Juliet, you were involved in planting this um, orchard as well? Um, yes. What uh, was it like? Uh, it was hard work, digging a lot of holes and <laughs> um, putting the uh, young plants in. Ed, who's in his early 80s, is not only a musician, a lawyer and an orchardist, he's had time to do a bit of research into the local soils over the years. Greytown was picked in about 1953 by a Dr Cowie of the Soil Bureau who was charged with finding the next place that would supply fruit and vegetables to Wellington because the Hutt Valley, which was the previous supplier, they had built it out with housing and industry, hadn't they? 
So all of those uh, orchards and market gardens were finished. And so Cowie was uh, tasked with finding the next place and he located both Greytown and Horafenua. There is a soil map of Greytown and um, he came to the conclusion that the Greytown soils, and there's about eight categories, were mostly very suitable, but the top soils were Greytown 3 and Greytown 3D, the D being deep, and this orchard is actually situated on both those soils. Do you get sick of apples, Ed? I'm not totally partially fond of them, actually. Really? <laughs> An apple grower that doesn't I, I really sam- like apples? I, I sample them, you know, you know are they ripe? Are we, you know, uh, what, what, how are they going? Um, but I don't really like a lot of apples. You're not really a connoisseur of apples, then. No. Who is? Are you? Julia? I'm the biggest apple eater in the family. Yes. Yeah. But we been... have them stewed, and we have um, <laughs> all sorts of ways, of course. That's Granny Smith's over there. So out of the orchard and into the shed, and here's Wendell. Wendell, you're getting prepared for the weekend. G'day. Yes, I am. Yep, just putting the finishing touches on this uh, sign for the front gate, inviting people to come in and pick your own. Now, you are basically in charge of the orchard, are you? Yeah, I mean, with Dad and um, with lots of assistance from people who know better. Uh, But, yep, I I share the blame. (laughs) You're not an orchardist or a horticulturalist by training, though, are you? No, absolutely not. Um, I do have memories of as being, you know, as a teenager sitting around in the lounge um, snipping off lengths of wire and threading them through plastic sheaths sheaths, and bending the ends to form kind of ties for the trees when they were small and being put in. Um, that was the extent of it as a teenager and then when I was at uni I kind of mowed a bit um, but really, yeah, no, I do not have a horticultural background. Has it been a steep learning curve or is it it's sort of ingrained an, It's in been an insanely <laughs> steep learning curve. You know, um, I couldn't even remember how to drive a tractor and, um, you know, had never sprayed. Um, So, you know, I've had to, you know, get my head around new gear. Things like fungal diseases, you know, black spot and powdery mildew, chemicals. Um, Pruning, I'd never pruned. Just day-to-day orchard work that I knew nothing about. Um, And I've had lots of assistance from from JR's Orchards and, um, yeah, and other people. What have been the biggest challenges so far in, in the season? Especially for someone who is new to it. Yeah, I mean, it's, the weather's been crazy. Um, I think it, you know a lot of experienced orchardists have said to me this is one of the hardest years they've had, um, just in terms of how much rain we had over spring and summer. Um, so you know, sprays are constantly being washed off. You have to reapply them, and you know, once you do get like say black spot in on the tops, it washes down. And so yeah, just th- those kinds of challenges have been crazy. Um, there's a whole lot more that should go on, but we don't have um, resources. For instance, we probably only pruned about a quarter of what needed to be pruned last season. Your orchard listeners are going to be horrified. And the trees are immense, you know. And, um, yeah, so there's just a whole lot sort of that we haven't been able to get around to. Um, we didn't thin this year, um, so some of the trees are top-heavy and the apples will be smaller than, you know, what would be ideal, I guess. Um, so, yeah, there's lots and lots of work. Um, we're just sort of doing what we can. So it's kind of a labour of love, really, almost, isn't it, for, the, for this whole family? Yeah, it has become that, yeah. And it's been really awesome seeing my, you know, roping my brother and sister and my mum in 
um, to do the social media and to be working in the shop. Um, that's really cool. You're a bit of a linguist. You're passionate about the Chinese language? Yeah, I'm a practitioner rather than an expert. Um, I did a three-year BA in Mandarin um, back in the 90s. I uh, lived in Beijing for three years. Um, and some of my earlier jobs um, you know, involved using Mandarin. Are you going to be using your Chinese on the orchard? Uh, well, I hope so. Yeah, I've just been hitting up my Chinese friends and contacts in the community to create a, a poster for the orchard uh, in Mandarin, and I'll be sharing that out on WeChat. Um, so it says at the top, Molwood Orchard, So Molwood Orchard, apple picking season has begun. Which says, you know, we've got your weekend, we've got wonderful plans for your weekend i.e. picking apples at our place. And so, yep, I hope to see lots of um, Chinese friends come out. This is a a departure, really, from how the orchard's been operating in the past. It was leased and most of the apples were going for export. Mm. Um, How do you think this is going to go, the pick-your-own? We don't know. It's a bit of an experiment. Um, We are still selling, um, we are still providing apples to um, retailers um, and... I hope to also pick for juice, and on top of that, yeah, I guess our third income stream is going to be the pick-your-own. Um, but, you know, look, there's a far greater quantity of apples and pears than we can pick and sell ourselves. So, yeah, we are going to be reliant on the pick-your-own to kind of, yeah, make tide us over. <laughs> it's a lovely experience. Mm, it's it actually... You can see, I mean, would people come and picnic in the rows and that sort of thing? Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. That's what we're inviting them to do. Yeah. Or up. Yeah, up. we're just opening it up, basically. Or up the headland here, you know, under the trees here. They'll need to watch their children. <laughs> you wouldn't want all those small children in here. It'd be a nightmare. It's a bit like, like a maze, isn't like it? A maze. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, here we go. Here's the road, poking through the shelter belt here, and as yes, there is a road coming right up to your orchard. To our boundary. To your boundary. It's the road literally to nowhere at the moment because there's a whole bunch of apple trees in here. Um, you're a bit of a rebel, Ed. Mm-hmm. You're holding out. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. What are you going to do? Are you going to pin signs to this fence? We're just going to hold out <laughs> and not sell. <laughs> well, that's about all we can do, really, isn't it? If, I, if I'm going to be true to my principles, I, but I'm 81 in a couple of weeks, I have to say. And who knows? We might tip over what what the family will do. Marin. <laughs> over to you. <laughs> well, I must say, I mean, I didn't grow up with the orchard because it was planted after I'd left home. But just in the last few months when I've really got involved in helping mum and dad with it, I've become really, really fond of it. It's it's such a wonderful place and it's it's it would just be terribly sad to see it cut up for houses. So I'm doing what I can to keep it going. Marin Cook and her father Ed at Mulwood Orchard. Imagine a love for cows pulling you 10,000 kilometres from your homeland. Leah Tebbett travelled to Galatea to meet Bay of Plenty Dairy Manager of the Year, Chi Hanyuda. It's a busy time of the year for Chi. It's calving season. 
Today she's carved 16 calves. So after a mucky afternoon in the paddocks, we settled down for a trip down memory lane in front of a roasting fire. You were born in Japan, weren't yeah. you? So how long ago did you move to New Zealand? About seven years ago. So I always wanted to be a dairy farmer growing up, but of course looked at being a farmer over there in Japan, but I realised that it was hard to make, make a living out of farming. So I decided to look at overseas and just happened to end up in New Zealand, really. Where I grew up, I say it's a rural area, but rural in Japan, so it's not really rural here, so I can't really say that, but it's a small town, and my dad is a tax accountant, and my mum, when I was a kid, she stayed home at um, mum, but she eventually started um, helping out my dad at um, his office. True. Well. Yeah. So where did the dairy farm or farming dream come from um, for you? To be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> like, I always liked um, animals to start with, but especially cows. And like even in Japan, the scale's way smaller over there than here. But every time like, I smelt some um, cows or like sell some cows, I, I would just run to them and then like, oh, the cows! <laughs> so like I have no idea where that came from and then like when I first came here I wanted to be a farmer but I didn't know what kind of farmer I wanted to be and I just happened to run into a dairy farmer and I got hooked really. What is it about dairy farming that you enjoy? Um, Working with cows and like just being outdoors I suppose that's like the main thing because I, I don't think I could ever um sit in an office and you know, work all day. It's just not for me. You know, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> so where did you first land? What was the position that you first got when you arrived? Oh, so when I first came here, I went to Mass University in Palmy first to do some studying. <laughs> and I met some people through, like, um, some volunteer programs at uni. And then I was introduced to a farmer around Palmy and then I got to do a little bit of um, work experience on his farm. So, yeah, he taught me because I didn't really have any background in farming at all before I came here. So he um, taught me everything from zero. And after uni, I got a um, full-time job just outside of Taupo as a dairy assistant. From the dairy assistant role in Taupo, how many years ago did you move to Galatea? So that was the beginning of last season, so June last year. You moved here? Yeah. And you were put into the manager's role straight away? Yeah. So between Topo and here, I worked at the Kaimais for about a year as well. Started as a dairy assistant and then got promoted to a junior herd manager. And then that role kind of led me to this manager role here. My gosh, so you've made like a big jump up in, in terms of not knowing anything and not oh having... <laughs> yeah yeah that's what people said to me but to be honest for me it was always about like looking for opportunities because it's easy to get comfortable at one place but it's harder to get like new opportunities that way I always wanted to like look up for you know different opportunities different skill sets different I know because every farm's different so the more farms you go to 
the more you learn, I suppose. To describe the farm that we're at today, what is it? How big is it? How many cows? So we've got about 400 cows. We don't really have a young stock on farm. We keep calves till May and they go off to Agrasia and then our heifers come back the end of June, July-ish. So yeah, 400 cows. 148 hectares effective and dead flat which <laughs> I love so much <laughs> especially because um, at Turpo I just started learning how to ride a two-wheeler so it was not a fun farm to practice on <laughs> so here like, I'm not I'm still not good at riding a two-wheeler but it's so much easier like less risk of getting stuck and all that <laughs> so, yeah. The thing that sticks out to me a little bit, and obviously probably anyone else, is being a woman. Yeah. What's that like being on farm and being a woman, but also I guess just walking around town, you know, do people expect that you're a farmer? No, definitely not. Um, so, yeah, that's like the main barrier for me in this industry, being an Asian and female. Like people don't really look at me and think, oh, she's a farmer. Like in the past, especially in the past, I found it really hard to even get to an interview when I was applying for jobs. I don't know if it was because of the nationality or the fact that I'm female. I don't know if that's that. Um, yeah, like I found it really hard. And even like <clears throat> when I first started on my on um, the farm at Turbo, I feel like I didn't really, I wasn't really taken seriously. There are some challenges, I suppose, but that's for everyone. It's just different types of challenges for different people, I suppose. But I guess because you have a daughter, mm. you must feel quite proud showing that, you know, you can do anything. Yeah, definitely. So she's been my motivation ever since she came along, really. Like, here I am living by myself most of the time. It can get tough, but my partner and I talked when he got a job in Toranga because he f- and when we first moved here he had a job in Fakatane so when that happened um, we talked about it and then decided that staying me staying on this farm now would be the best um, option for us in the long run because we're not going to live apart forever obviously but at least for now this will be the fast step for me to like climb up the ladder in the industry and then get more opportunities in the future. So what are those opportunities that you're looking for? What's oh. the limit? <laughs> <laughs> I say like eventually I want to get to farm ownership. That was my um, childhood dream, like having a little dairy farm and have a little store as well to sell some products. want to get there eventually, but because... I started from zero and that didn't really help with my career progression when in, in terms of like my age and you know so um I don't know when that would happen but for now we're looking at contract marking just to get us to um like the next level I suppose wait that 7 years ago you moved to New Zealand mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You have done a lot, achieved <laughs> a lot. Do you look back on it and think, how the heck did I get here? Yeah, because I, I still keep in touch with that farmer. We still like quite often joke about like, do you remember like Chi on day one? And because um, I randomly um showed up or like uh, I had an appointment and all that, but you know, showed up. They were like, oh, so what? What do you want to learn about farming? And I was like, because I didn't know anything about farming. I just said everything. And then they just pretty much showed me everything, really. Oh, they did their best to anyway. I was just lucky to meet this, um, all those people who gave me the opportunity, really, every time I was looking for a job. Because it, without those people, I, you know, I wouldn't have got anywhere, really. If someone else was in a similar position to you and didn't know where to start or didn't have the courage, what would you say to them? Oh, definitely go for it. Chi Han Yuda. Well, that's it for this summer edition of Country Life. Hope you can join us again next time. From me, Sally Round, and the rest of the Country Life team, Hey Kona. to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.